The scripture that has been selected to be read in our hearing this morning can be found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 19. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking, to, uh, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So there was a college professor who was giving a timed final to his class of more than 100 students. And at the conclusion of the allotted time, he told the class to put down their pencils, their pens, their writing instruments, and to turn in their tests. But there was one student who just kept working. And so after all the other students came and handed in their test papers, the professor said to the student, Hey, it's time to turn in your test now. And the student just kept working. The professor said, I just want you to know, I'm not going to accept your test because it's going to be late. And the student kept working. Finally, after 30 minutes from the point at which the test technically ended, the student walked to the front of the room with his paper. The professor was sitting behind a table with the stack of tests on his desk. And the professor looked at him and said, I'm going to give you an F because you didn't finish the test in the allotted time. And the student looked at him. The student said, do you know who I am? The professor said, no, and I don't care. And the student said, good. Picked up half the pack of paper, stack of papers and shoved his in there and put it back down. <laughs> you know, sometimes it can be dangerous when you don't know who somebody Really dangerous is the wrong word. Sometimes it can create problems if you don't know who somebody is. But the real problems come when you don't know who you are. You know how I know that? I could cite some great psychological experiments that have proven that. I could quote some great, some great authors who have proven that point in their writings. But I know that because I experienced it. When I was in middle school... My youth group had a lot of guys in it who were very country. Now, when I say they were very country, I don't grew up in a rural area and that was our lifestyle was agriculture. I mean they were country in the sense that they loved country music and they dressed like Garth Brooks on the weekends. We grew up in the big metropolitan of Little Rock, Arkansas, we were too sophisticated to just be rural and agricultural, you know what I mean. I say that very facetiously. 
Anyway, I'm in seventh, eighth grade, and I decide I want to be like these guys. These guys, which included my older brother and his friends, and so I went out. And I got two cowboy hats. I had a black felt hat and a white straw hat. I got two pair of boots. One was black, one was gray. I had a buckle that was as big as my face. And I wore those Wranglers that you had to put on with a shoehorn. I had the whole outfit. Thankfully, no evidence of such attire exists at this time, or else I would be compelled to show it. But I went through an identity crisis for a couple of years. That's how I dressed. I went to school like that. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> oh, okay. So, here's the thing. I bet all of you have a similar story. That there's a phase in your life where you look back on it and you think, why did I act that way? Why did I dress that way? Why did I behave that way? Why did I like those things? And why did I associate in that fashion? We all have been there because we are all, at some point in our lives, trying to shape our identity. And when you don't know who you are, it can lead to big problems. Well, the beauty of Scripture is the fact that it tells us who we are. In fact, if you look here in Acts chapter 11, we read a pretty large section of the last half of Acts chapter 11, but there's really only one verse that I want to focus on this day. It's verse 26. And if you look there at Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, here's what we learn. We learn that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Unfortunately, the clicker is not working this morning. Thank you. Now, I want to focus in on this statement today. And I want to begin by considering its significance. There are two things about this little verse that are significant. The first thing is that the identity of Jesus' followers was solidified in Antioch. Now, think about that. The first time this term that is so commonplace today gets used is in Antioch, not Jerusalem. That's fascinating to me because when you think back on it, it's in Jerusalem that the church originates. Jerusalem was the center of Christianity for the first decade or so following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Jerusalem is the big church at this time. And the first time Antioch is even mentioned in the New Testament, it's in a little passing verse in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, because one of those seven guys who's chosen by the church in Jerusalem to oversee a benevolence program for widows, Acts chapter 6 and verse 5 tells us his name is Nicholas and he's from Antioch. That's the first reference to Antioch. So why is it the place where this identity of Christian comes into play? I think it's because Antioch became the model church. We don't talk much about the church in Antioch, but think about this. This church becomes a significant entity in the, the, the spread of Christianity in the first century. 
The church in Antioch, it was a, it was a benevolent, benevolently sensitive congregation. If you keep reading in Acts chapter 11, you're going to read about how a, a prophet came to Antioch named Agabus, and he foretold a famine that was coming on the whole world. And you know what the church in Antioch did? Its members started pooling their money. They started giving of their own funds. The famine hadn't even come yet. And they're going ahead and putting their money together because they know people are going to need it. And you know what they did? They sent that money down to Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem would know how to get it spread out to the people who need it. Before there's ever a problem, they're benevolently fixing the problem. This is a benevolently focused congregation. This is also a culturally diverse congregation. If you skip over to Galatians chapter 2, you're going to read about how Paul uh, is in Antioch when Peter comes to visit. And when Peter arrives, he spends time fellowshipping with Gentile members. But after a while, some members of the church in Jerusalem come up to Antioch, and all of a sudden, Peter is no longer fellowshipping with Gentiles. He'll only fellowship with Jews. And, and Paul cites it as a problem. Paul confronts Peter on it. And usually I bring up that story because it tells us about confronting our brothers when they sin or because it addresses hypocrisy. All I really want you to think about with Galatians chapter 2 is that there are Jews and Gentiles mixed in this congregation. It is a culturally diverse congregation. There are different ethnicities in it. And it depicts this idea that God has for his church to be for all people in all nations and all times. Not only is it a culturally diverse congregation, but it's also a mission-minded congregation. If you look in Acts chapter uh, 13, you'll find out that it's the church in Antioch who's going to initiate the first international evangelistic campaign. They're going to choose Paul and Barnabas by direction of the Holy Spirit to go out around the world sharing the good news of Christ. They're the church that starts it, not Jerusalem. I've talked about how the church in Jerusalem in this series has been slow at times to initiate mission. They, it took a, a persecution to get the first person to leave Jerusalem and to go preach in Samaria. It took a divine vision given to Peter for the gospel to get shared with the first Gentile. But here's the church in Antioch, and they're commissioning missionaries. And another reason why I think Antioch is a model church is because it was biblically sound. You can get to Acts chapter 15, and you have this issue where some members of the church in Jerusalem came to Antioch and started teaching false doctrine. They were teaching that in addition to baptism, in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas and members of the church in Antioch stood their ground and defended the gospel, and they ended up having to go to Jerusalem, meet with the elders of that congregation and the apostles, who were the ones who could weigh in on what was biblically true and what was not, because the scriptures hadn't been compiled yet. They have this meeting all because the church in Antioch stood for what was true. They were a biblically sound congregation. I throw all of this at you real quick to just give you a brief overview of what we know about the church in Antioch because it was an incredible congregation. And I think it's because they were such an incredible congregation that this title is going to be born here. Because these guys... This congregation, these members, this body of Christ, it emulated everything that the church ought to be. And so the term Christian is first going to make its appearance in Antioch. 
the identity of Jesus' followers was solidified in Antioch. But in addition to that, the identity of Jesus' followers was changed to Christian. See, I say it was changed because this was not the first designation for Jesus' followers in the book of Acts. You can go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, and you'll see that Jesus' followers were called brothers. You know, brothers implies a spiritual family, and we know that, that in Christ we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that we are children of God. There's a familial aspect to our identity. But that term brothers is also used in regards to the nation of Israel. You can go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, and verse 15, where the terms brothers and kinsmen are used in reference to the whole house of Israel, to quote Ezekiel. So the term brothers is not just a term used to identify Christians. It was a term used to identify the Israelites. The same can be said for another term, believers. Believers is another term used for Jesus' followers in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. Now this term actually does not make an appearance anywhere in your Bible except for the New Testament, but the, the Jews would not be opposed to that title because believers insinuates faith in God. And who was the first to be commended for their faith in God? It was their forefather Abraham, who according to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then in Acts chapter 6 and verse 2, Jesus' followers were called disciples. That's another term that was regularly used in regards to the church in the first century. But it's interesting to me where you might think disciples is limited to Christians. The term disciple, it just infers a student-teacher relationship. And in the Old Testament, you even have this word, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse Oh, I lost it. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16, where disciples is, is a term used in reference to the followers of God who were willing to listen to God's instructions through the prophet Isaiah. And even the Pharisees, that group within Judaism, had their own disciples, according to Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. So this title is not uniquely Christian. Eventually, Jesus' followers were called the way in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, and that title is used as a means of identifying Jesus' followers as a sect within Judaism. You can see that in, also in Acts chapter 24, verse 14, and 28, verse 22. That means that it did not distinguish them as separate from Judaism. When they called them the way, what they were saying is they've got a distinct belief system under this umbrella of Judaism, and so they're a sect within us. It didn't distinguish them, so it was not a uniquely Christian identity. And finally, Jesus' followers were also called saints, Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. Saints refers to one who has been set apart, one who has been sanctified, one who has been uniquely called. And what's so very interesting is it is a favorite term in the book of Psalms. There are dozens of appearances of the term saints in Psalms, like Psalm 116, verse 15, which says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So it's not a uniquely Christian title. That's what makes Christian such an important title. It can't apply to people 
of the Jewish faith, of the Israelite faith who preceded them. It's unique. It's distinctive. It's different. It identified the followers of Jesus as a specific group of people. Christian, that term, what does it mean, though? Where did they get this word? How did they come up with it? Christian is a transliteration of the Greek term Christianos. That means it's an English word that was just made to sound like its original Greek word. But Christian needs to be broken down. If you were to do a grammatical breakdown of that term, you would start with the base word. The base word is Christos. We would say Christ. It's the title attributed to the Messiah. It's the Greek way of referring to the anointed one, to the one who is the Messiah, the one who is to come. It's the title that came to be associated with Jesus and started functioning even as a proper name. He wasn't always just referred to as Jesus. He started being referred to as Christ. And so it's a proper name associated with the Son of God. And then you have this Ionis ending, the I-A-N ending, if you would. That is a Latin ending added to the base word, the Greek word for Christ. And that Latin ending is used to identify a group. A group that is specifically associated with the base word. And so actually, if you were in the book of Mark, you would hear, see this reference in chapter 3 and verse 6 to a group called the Herodians. That just means it's a group who supports Herod, or Herod's reign, or Herod's dynasty. You add that I-A-N ending to a word, and all you're saying is this is a group that goes with the base word of, that's mentioned here. And so Christian simply means a group that follows, that supports, that adheres to Christ. I know that's elementary. I know that you are smart enough to figure that out on your own, but sometimes it helps to work through some of this. Sometimes it helps for us to actually think about it and not just assume it. But what are the implications for us to have a name that associates us with Christ? The first implication is that Christian implies distinction. It's interesting to note that the text says the disciples were called Christians there in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. They were called Christians. Now, the way that is phrased, it implies that in all probability, the term Christian was a nickname given by the populace of Antioch. And it's likely that the name contained an element of ridicule. In fact, one, one of the only other two appearances of the word Christian in the Bible is in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, where Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa's usage possesses a hint of derision, so it may be that this title originated as a way of making fun of this select group because of their distinctive belief. But regardless of that fact, this, regardless of the fact that this nickname may have originated as a, a, a derogatory term, regardless of that, Peter, as one author said, put the stamp of divine approval on it when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16, which says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And it's in that same letter where Peter makes this statement, 
that earlier he's going to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that we should embrace our identity as aliens. I know you were wondering why there's an alien on my PowerPoint. I'm finally getting around to it. We are to embrace our identity as aliens by keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they may glorify God. That term translated aliens comes from a Greek word that refers to a stranger, a foreigner, one who lives in a place without the right of citizenship. You and I, who wear the name Christian, we are aliens. We're not citizens here. When we became a Christian, we became citizens of somewhere else, citizens of heaven, as Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us. Our identity went through a shift when we inherited that name. We belong here. We just abide here temporarily. That name Christian, it implies that you're different and distinct and unique in this world. The question is, do you live up to the name? The other thing this title implies is representation. That verb that's translated came, that, that indicates that uh, the, the d- disciples came to be known as Christians, that verb that, that uh, is translated came to be known or were called, literally means to transact business. To transact business under a particular name is in effect to be publicly known by that name. In other words, this terminology indicates that the followers of Christ in Antioch assumed the identity of Christ and styled their life after his. They were, for all intents and purposes, reflecting Christ's image to the world. Now, where would they have gotten the idea that it's their responsibility to reflect Christ, to represent Christ? Maybe from the fact that in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But then in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, he said, you are the light of the world. In one passage, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world, but in the other passage, he declares his followers to be the light of the world. The only way both statements can be true is if his followers are imitating him in such a way that they're able to serve as his representatives. See, that's another implication of this title that you wear. Do you represent Christ in such a way that when someone looks at you, they see him? Does the world around you know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ simply by looking at your life. How, how do I know whether or not someone's a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs? Can't I see it? Can't I hear it? I can see it in the clothes they wear, the colors they pick, the coordination of the outfits. Can't I hear it in the words they say and, and, and the, the terminology they use? And I could say the same thing about every collegiate football team, right? You can see it, you can hear it, it's represented in their 
We're good at representing that in our appearance and in our speech. How good are we at representing Christ in the same way? Is it as visible in our lives? Is His Lordship as visible in our lives as our fandom of our college football teams? Because that term Christian implies our representation of Him. And finally, this term Christian implies requisition. Now, can I admit something to you that I know you already know? I use the word requisition just because it ended like all the other words. We preachers love alliteration, and guess what? You benefit from our alliteration. Because the reason we choose words that begin with the same letter or sound the same rhyme, whatever it is, is to help you remember the points of the sermon. Because we know we can be boring sometimes, right? But if I can help you remember what we talked about, then maybe when you're visiting Scripture again and you are looking back on this passage, you'll remember these words at least. Requisition is not the best word, but it does convey the idea that I want to talk about. Because requisition means an official order laying claim to the use of property or materials. It's primarily a term that simply means I'm taking possession of this person, place, or thing. It implies ownership. And that's what I'm really talking about. You know that I-A-N ending on the word Christian? It signifies ownership. That suffix was used in secular writings to designate property as belonging to certain ones. Especially was it used to mark slaves as the property of their masters, as one commentator pointed out. So the term Christian means the property of Christ, one who belongs to Christ. And when you understand that about this term, it makes some of the statements in Scripture so much more impactful. Like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where in verse 19 and 20, we're told you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Or think about Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, where we're told that, the, that our record of debt was canceled when it was nailed to the cross. Or even 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, where Peter says we were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we were bought, that our debts were canceled, that we were ransomed. And that means that our identity as Christians implies His ownership of us. Now, we're uncomfortable with such terminology, but journey throughout Scripture, and you and I are identified more often than not, as Christ followers, we're identified as servants. We're under the ownership of God, of Christ. Does your life reflect that? Does your life reflect the ownership of your master, or does it reflect your own being forced through? See, this title, this term that gets so regularly used by us today implies more than we realize. 
We need to appreciate what it means to wear the name of Christ when we wear the name Christian. You can ask Sarah when she was pregnant, Micah in particular being that she was our first one. The pregnancy didn't do much for me. And what I mean by that is I was not the father that would come over and, and Sarah would say, oh, she's kicking. And I'd be like, oh, I got to touch it. I got to feel it. I remember feeling Micah kick for the first time. It did nothing for me. I was like, oh, when I have gas, it does that. That, that was my mentality. I was the most insensitive as far as the pregnancy, not as far as Sarah's health and well-being, but as far as the fact that there's a human growing in there, I was the most insensitive man on the face of the earth, and I wasn't any better with Leah, to be honest. But, in both instances, but especially in Micah's case, I had one moment where it was all different. And that was the moment when we found out gender. Because on the day we found out the gender, we knew what name was going to be attached. And from that day forward, she had an identity. It was no longer it. It was no longer some random thing coming in the future. She was Micah. From that point forward, she had an identity. And it changed the way I thought about her and even myself. God looks down on you as his child, and he sees your identity. He sees who you are supposed to be, and he sees what you can be, and he sees what he's made you to be. This morning, we're in Acts. We're looking at this one single verse and we're looking at this one single word because it makes that much difference when you fully grasp it. That in Christ, you can be a Christian. Under his ownership. In Christ, you can be his representative. In Christ, excuse me, in Christ, you have this unique, distinctive identity. How are you doing at wearing that name? Now, it may be you're here today and you've never put on Christ, that you have not inherited that name, and right now is the opportunity for you to do so. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you can become his that you can enter his family, that you can wear his name. Maybe you need to make that decision today. Whatever your need is, we gather here as the family of God so that we can encourage one another, admonish one another, help one another, pray for one another, whatever it might be. Today we offer the Lord's invitation. Won't you come while together?